Hello and welcome to the second chapter. I hope you've had a fantastic week. You're going to love this week's guest. But first, have you followed the second chapter podcast on Instagram? We're at the second chapter podcast with underscores between the words. Follow for first peeks at some of our guests, giveaways, and of course, just to say hello and show us some love. This week, I'm speaking with Debbie Page. To say Debbie is a potter or a ceramist is an understatement. Despite finding a feel for clay in her early teens, it took decades to make clay her career. Now pots are Debbie's life. Don't know what a moon jar is? Just love hearing some really uplifting chat from someone who has found their thing? Either way, you're in the right place. This is Debbie Page. We've gone into a position in society where everything has to be perfect. Everything has to be right. If you're doing everything right first time, you're not trying hard enough. Sometimes you have to push it till it breaks. And out of that, you get Phoenix from the flame and all that sort of stuff. Hi, Debbie. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much. Yeah, good. Sun shining. Looking good. I have my curtains all closed because of trying to get good sound. So Aww. I have no idea what it's like. It's a lovely sunny day. It looks like there could be a bit of rain later, but at the moment there's blue sky. So you we'll know. take it in October. Definitely. It looks like you're sitting in your studio. I'm doing a little visual tour. We'll have to talk about that later, but it looks amazing. It's not looking at its be- I mean, it's a working studio. <laughs> At the moment, it looks like a bombs hit it, but yeah, it's it's my little sanctuary. Oh, that's one of my dreams, one of my many dreams to have just a, a working, like a physical, artistic working space. Sounds lovely. It is the best. It really is. I can't remember how long I've wanted my own space. I got fed up of working at the kitchen table and the dining room table. It's not the biggest shed I could have had but at the time it made sense to have it this size and I've got everything I need in here except the kettle and a toaster but basically (laughs) a kettle would be nice well the thing is it's a pottery you shouldn't eat and drink in a pottery we'll get into how you got into all of this but I do want to start a little further back and and ask about your beginnings actually I don't know anything about where you grew up and what Let's go back to childhood. Okay, let's go back. Well, that's where it starts anyway. That's where the pottery starts anyway. So, okay. So originally I am from a town called Folkestone in Kent and I always have loved working with my hands. So knitting, sewing, junk modeling, just basically using my hands all the time. And I'm not a bad seamstress. I'm not a bad knitter, but it was, I was about 13 And at school, we had uh, a really, looking back, she was a really good art teacher. And at school for one year, when you're about 13, 14, you get a bit awkward. She organised for each term a pottery, batik and lino cutting. And the Mm. idea was that you rotated through each of those. I was lucky I got pottery first. And I can actually still remember getting my fingernails in that clay. And it was just like love at first touch. Absolutely. I just can't explain it. It was, you know, the whole, I found my place in the world. And oh, it makes me feel funny about thinking about it. I can smell it. I know that sounds really strange, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I remember the yeah. first time I, I was like, and it's obviously not my thing, but I that smell and that feeling of the how it's so cool. And yes, I absolutely. Slightly gritty, the whole textural thing. And it was, I enjoyed it so much. The pottery teacher was so laid back. At the beginning of the next term, when I was meant to do, I think I was meant to do batik, it's just far too fiddly for me. So I found someone at the end of the first week who couldn't stand pottery. So I sort back into pottery. I wasn't the only person. A friend of mine called Liz did it as well. 
And um, so we had two terms. And then the third term came and the first week in lino cutting, oh, my fingers were shredded. Yes. So again, I desperately found somebody who couldn't stand pottery. So I did three terms of pottery and I've still got three of the pots I made. My sister still got the mug I made for her. And we are talking, well, I'm 60 this year, or 60 this year. So we're talking 47 years later. I've still got my first pieces of pottery. And one of them is a moon jar, which I now make. So obviously all the way back then, it, you know, there was something in the universe which is a bit woo-woo, but I suppose finding your groove so early on is, is a little weird, but I still got my stuff and I, I still show some of my stuff to people to say, look, this is what you can make as a complete beginner, because it's important that, anyway, we'll probably talk about that later, but I, I feel sometimes art and stuff can freak people out because it's just, it's up there and their experience is down there sort of thing. So I did this pottery for a year and then Mrs. Beeching, the art teacher, she left and she was replaced by a chap who was a very, again, a very good artist, but if you couldn't paint like Constable, he wasn't interested in you. And I can't paint Constable. I don't want to paint like Constable, to be fair. Let Constable do what he does really well. And he had no time for people with the more sort of 3D approach at all. So I thought, oh, I'm not doing art. I have two similar experiences. One where I, when I switched from elementary school in the States to junior high school, Mm -hmm. I went from this amazing art teacher to someone very similar. And I just always thought my life would be about art in some way. And then to go from that to this is the kind of art I do. And if you're not that person, it was so, it was such an eye opener. And I just left it behind because as as a 13 or 14 year old, because I must've been about 13, you just kind of think, oh, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. And same thing with musical theater was a huge thing for me in high school. And the last year, it was the most devastating thing. The last year we did an opera instead of a musical. And I wasn't that caliber or that type of singer. So I thought, oh, I must not be good enough. One person can change your whole track for a long time. Absolutely. And and it was a long time. And I didn't do art. So I, I finished art at 14 and didn't come back into pottery until I was about 27. By that time, I'd gone on to train as a nurse. I'd done a psychology degree and we moved to a new place, new town, uh, my partner and I. And um, as a way of getting to know people, I found a pottery class. So it's like, oh, you know, I'm back. Yes. <laughs> and... I didn't realise at the time just how lucky I was to get into the pottery class because they were incredibly popular. They still are, but they were incredibly popular. And then we moved again, as you do when you're, you know, setting up your career, you move around. And we moved to Yorkshire and we were there for two and a half years and I just never got anywhere near a pottery class. They were all so oversubscribed. So having sort of at 13, 14, found it, had it snatched away, 27, found it, snatched away, It was like, oh, what's going on here? So when we moved down to to Reading, I'm going to join a pottery class and meet new people. And I did. And I've not turned back. And that was in 94, 1994. And I've achieved those two objectives. I found a pottery class and, and changed career. And I've made so many wonderful friends, met so many amazing people and have recrafted my career which isn't bad for what started off as a Monday evening. <laughs> Street 
from work endeavour. So that's my very, excuse the pun, potted history. But it's always been there. Even when I wasn't making pots because I couldn't get to a pottery class, I was going and looking at pottery. I was going and looking at art. So the interest has always been there. It's just not been able to physically get my hands on the stuff as as I always wanted to. So it is fascinating just how if you keep wanting to get back to something it eventually for me it worked I got back there which is great and now I got a couple of years ago now I was I'm discounting 19 you know 2020 it doesn't really mean much anymore in that sort of respect but at the beginning of um, the academic year 2019 I was asked by the college I work for to profile to go on the website fine okay and uh, the standard sort of questions what do you do why do you do it and then it was so what do you do in your spare time I make pots, I go and look at pots, I talk to people about pots. It's it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't imagine at any point in my life pots not being there. I can imagine not making pots. It doesn't fill me with joy at all as you become frailer obviously and your ability to do stuff diminishes and that's obviously a long way off, but I'd still want to look at pots. I'd still want to touch pots. I'd still want to talk to people about it I'm sorry I I can't fill in this question (laughs) it's gonna sound really boring but I live and breathe the things you know that's amazing to me because I remember at one point my mom said to me you don't have to make every hobby into a job and I do fear that is a thing for me where I start getting to the point that I'm like oh I like doing this maybe I should like try to do it as part of my portfolio of whatever I'm doing so That kind of leads me to want to ask you to go from a hobby or a Monday night class to a job is a big deal. And I know you, you did the healthcare thing for a while. Actually, I'm curious how you got into that. Okay. Uh, Let's talk about that for a second, because I'm curious, because I do feel like I talk to a lot of people who have had healthcare careers and eventually move on. And I do feel like there's a generation that was told that was one of the two or three things they want to do. Was that the case for you? Pretty, well, yes and no. I had a glamorous godmother, Val, Auntie Val. And she was just one of these people who just always looked immaculate. She was just a lovely lady. And she was a theatre sister. And it was very glamorous. So very glamorous. So I thought, oh, no, I'll be like Auntie Val. I'll go and do nursing. And everyone said, yeah, that's a good thing to do. That's a good thing to do. The only person who said, are you sure about this, was my dad. And he said, I think you should be doing medicine. And it's like, whoa, no, don't want to do that. But he was the only person who said it out of teachers, everyone else. So I went off, and at the time in the UK, the, the nurse training was hospital-based. It, was, it wasn't a degree, it was a, sort of an apprenticeship, really. And I had a way of time. I really, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it very much. But I'd always got in my head, and I think this was from my dad saying, I think you should be doing medicine, that actually maybe I should do a degree. So the plan was I would do my nurse training and then go and do a degree. And at the, right at the beginning, I had no, no real thought as to what sort of degree I would do. And as I went through for the first couple of years of my nurse training, I just became very interested in mental health, very interested in it. And it was that was like a, a possible career path for me after my general nurse training is to go into to mental health training in nursing. Along the way, going back to Auntie Val, I, I did a stint in theatres and absolutely hated it. Absolutely <laughs> I hated wearing a mask. I it, I don't know if you've ever been in hospital theatres, but they are hot. 
because the patient is basically naked underneath all of the, the surgical towels. So the room has to be hot so the patient doesn't get cold. You're absolutely sweltering because you've got hats, you've got masks, you might have goggles, you've got all this extra clothing on you. I hated it. Sorry, Auntie Val. I tried. <laughs> And it's not glamorous at all either. Don't get that picture. It's not glamorous at all. So I thought with a degree, let's look at psychology. So I did a psychology degree. Half thought about training as a clinical psychologist. Half thought, quarter training about, thought about psychotherapy. And then something happened in, in the NHS that sort of angered me deeply. Nurses predominantly are female. And... They still are. And I'm of a generation where, having said my dad said I should be doing medicine, I went to a school where the headmistress refused to sign your university application form if you wanted to do law or medicine. This was the late 1970s. It's not that long ago, but that was the vibe you lived in. And the health service went through another organisation, as it does seemingly at frequent intervals. And uh, a move was made from administration to management. And this idea that you did not have to be a medic or a nurse to run a hospital came to the fore. And there was great resistance in some areas to this some areas of the healthcare professional world. And one of the most vehement groups of people who said, no, only healthcare people can manage healthcare people were nurses. And it's hang on a minute, girls. And they were all girls. I'm not just being disparaging. Hang on a minute, ladies. They're saying anyone can manage healthcare professionals. Why aren't nurses out there managing professional Mm. everyone? Nurses have been that they are in Every quarter, every single nook and cranny of a hospital, you will find a member of nursing staff. You cannot move in a hospital without coming across a member of nursing staff. Use it. And interestingly, very few in that first sort of wave of general manager appointments, very few nurses were appointed. Not because they were applied and were kicked back, because they did not apply. So I, anyway, I applied to be a... <laughs> I applied to be a hospital manager and I got in a psychiatric hospital and oh it was the best job oh it was the best job because it was combining my interest with mental health my nursing background this particular district health authority I worked for had never had a nurse in a general management role or in a general admin role and I was given so many opportunities because of that clinical background that I would not have been given if I hadn't got it, and I was able to bring all with four years nursing experience, you're not talking 20 years experience, it just goes to show that even with a little bit of clinical experience, you can actually influence and and get involved in so many different aspects, because people value that experience, they recognise it's useful, recognise its use. So I had several very happy years there. And then job moves with my partner and stuff, we ended up in Yorkshire, I thought I better try try and be outside of mental health. And uh, the move to Yorkshire only lasted two and a half years. And we, when we came back to this part of the world, I stayed within a more acute um, setting. But I worked for an insurance company, which was different. So I've had this wonderful sort of lifetime experience of working in organisations that are just so incredibly varied. And the people within them are so incredibly varied. And it's, it's just been fascinating to, to think about it. And whenever you're in a room, somebody at some point will say, will make reference to the fact that they used to nurse and within seconds we're all there (laughs) sort of camaraderie I haven't physically nursed for a very long time and I I was in hospital management until 1999 one way or another and I but I haven't nursed in a very long time but there's still that 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 interest in camaraderie you you can't walk down a street without falling over (laughs) 
a nurse or someone who's worked in, in healthcare. You were not the first person who said that to me. There was somebody <laughs> else that I chatted with who was just like, still to this day, you see a nurse and it's like, ah. And my sister's the same. My sister's a nurse. Ah, uh, well, there you go. And she's got the mug and bought my dad the t-shirt that was like dad of an amazing nurse like the whole thing yeah it's definitely a thing at one point I got so fed up of being in nursing you know, just, I think I really do need to meet some other sort of people so I, I went and often did a master's degree and I'm in the room and we're doing these introductions and every single person in that room other than one person was a nurse coming along to doing exactly the same thing I want to meet people other than nurses <laughs> So you you got back into you got to start touching pottery again oh, yeah. in 1994. Yes. How long did the road take before it could become what you're doing today, or before it could become your profession versus your profession, profession it, and your hobby? <laughs> um, I started really. Oh, well, I started teaching it in 2007, quite by accident. I'd at that point been a member of a local pottery guild for about coming up two years, dabbling, putting the toe in the selling forum, selling sort of, we had to, the, the guild I belong to, it, it's, it's a lovely group and it's USP for want of a better expression is that if you want to exhibit your work, you can, there's no selection process. You just tip up and put your pots on the table. So I'd done one or two exhibitions with literally, you know, because it's a big thing. It's a big thing putting your work with a price tag on it. And I feel like some people are really confident about that, to be fair. And a generalist, they tend to be men. But I am always (laughs) really surprised. I can imagine how this is what I've been doing. Do you want to pay for it? Yeah. You asked my other half about this and he, he just still is in totally and utterly how can you possibly put that price tag on something? One of the things I did was a sitting guilds diploma. And part of the diploma work was to cost how to produce a project. So the, the idea was that you pretended you had a client and you, you talk through their commission, that sort of thing. And one of the things you had to do was a, a 40 inch sculpture, which on me, or five foot one of me, it's, it's big. And so I did a mountain of washing up. So it took me two years to make. And it was about 90 pieces in this mountain and they all threaded together and it, it came apart. And I put it in for an exhibition at a local arts centre and it was a selling exhibition and I had to put a price on it. I couldn't just let people look at it. It had to be for sale. So I went to my costing sheet, £700. This was 2002, something like that. Anyway, I put this price on it, dragged the entire family to the preview, the, the right. private view, the opening view. And um, my other half was looking at it and the price tag, and he went loudly in this, you know, big gallery. He said, how can you charge 700 quid? I said, well, it took me two years to make. There's 90 pieces. See, I'm thinking the opposite. I'm like, two years. It wasn't two years full time. I was like 700 pounds. This is, and this is the thing is I do feel like there's the two sides of it. How can you charge 700 pounds for a pile of washing up? And <laughs> how can you only charge 700 pounds when you know what went into it? Oh, that, that's a whole different bull game, isn't it? Talking about pricing, the black art of pricing. It's, I talk with, with people at, you know, affairs and things about it. And it's, there are so many different views about how you get to what you actually charge. We had a guy who who taught us a little bit on the diploma and um, amazing chap, used to make furniture from clay, beautiful. And we asked him 
somehow pricing came up and um, he said if I enjoy making it I charge so much an hour but if I don't enjoy making it I charge more because I don't enjoy it so he, he said he found himself in a situation once where he'd made something and he was asked to make another one and he'd hated making it it was a real pain to finish off so someone said oh I want one of those can you make me one and it's like oh. because of course artists don't say no we never say no and he put silly price on it and they said okay then that's great they didn't even haggle it's okay where do I sign and went, oh god I've got a <laughs> it is so true though you say about artists not saying no because I think part of what I said before about my mom saying you don't have to make every bit of your hobbies or everything you like to do into a job. It's like if you're doing yeah. something creative and somebody wants to pay you for it, you just have to say yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. it's actually, not just it me. doesn't even have to be creative. If somebody's <laughs> going to pay you for something, <laughs> you have to say yes. I know. It's weird, isn't it? It's weird. I can't remember what we were meant to be talking about now. But <laughs> it got onto pricing. Yeah. Did you enjoy that? How much would it cost? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed it. Good. Then I'm going to get it cheap. Um, <laughs> You said you started teaching in 2007 and then... Yeah, so I really started getting very organised about putting myself out there from about 2008 onwards, really 2008, which was so fantastically timed for the financial crisis. <laughs> it's always the way. It's always the way. It's always the way. What do people um, give up first? Things that are considered sort of unnecessary, like art, pottery, yeah. these kind of things. Absolutely. I'm an optimist. I enjoy it. I would still make pots. Even if I never sold another pot, I would still be making them. And my shed is only so big. <laughs> so I've got to try and sell them. Um, I've given away as many as I can thing. And, and now it's time to sell them. So I keep making, I keep turning up and yeah, it's, I enjoy the life. I enjoy the life. It isn't just the making process, although obviously that's that is a really important part, but it's also the whole world of it. I can't speak about other artists and craftspeople, but potters are a very supportive bunch of folk and usually very generous with their knowledge. And that is, is a real attraction as well, that sort of community. You went from nurses to potters. I know. <laughs> and an awful lot of nurses, are an awful lot of potters are nurses. Again, you get more than 10 people in a room, at least three of them will be nurses. We get, we are everywhere. We are just pervasive throughout the whole world. Yes. So it's the making process, the community, the support. I totally acknowledge, um, very fortunate in that I do some, I work doing something I love. And I appreciate that not everybody has that. I, and I take that as a privilege. I, I have two strands to my career currently. I make and sell my, my work and I teach and I, I, enjoy both of them I think if you're if you've been played a very good hand then that brings with it a responsibility God, I'm getting heavy here aren't I I'm sorry but it, it brings with it a responsibility to play it back to play it forward so I'm quite I, I and I enjoy that aspect of it as well get all psychological and talk about altruism here but I don't think I'm gonna do it down that route but it's all tied up with I don't just make pots live pots it's part of it's part of me it makes perfect sense though <laughs> if you like you said are fortunate enough to be doing what you love to do it only makes sense to give some of that as well and going back to our art teachers that we talked about the ones that have that love for it and share that love for it could really influence oh yeah a career path a lifestyle a life path absolutely i've got a big craft festival this weekend and one of the chaps I've I taught it's his first big craft fair that he's doing and the pride 
that somebody I taught is pushing himself into that career. Oh, it's, I suppose it's disproportionate. I, mean, I feel so proud of him. So proud of him. It's silly, isn't it? No, it's not silly. It's going back to school. Okay, going back to school through various mishaps, none of which were my making. La, I, I had, I, I was not very good at maths. We basically, for one of our years of maths, we were taught by two teachers and they both, the, the idea was that they split syllabus and teachers half each. They taught us the same half. So there's a whole bunch of maths that you learn when you're about 12, 13 that is just not in my brain at all. Never was. And of course, it was all our fault. We didn't know what we were meant to be taught. Anyway, so I was kicked down to the bottom math set and I had the most amazing maths teacher, Mrs. Tamanas. And I don't know how she did it, but I got a B in my O level. And I walked back into school on the first day to start my A-levels. And she ran from the back of the hall to the front to give me a big hug. And I feel like that about this chap. Oh, I'm feeling all teary again. I feel so proud of him. I saw him two, two and a half hours a week for two or three years. And he's taken that and just off. And his work is wonderful. He's wonderful. I feel great, great pride in that. Yeah, teaching. I really love the teaching. I'm Again, I'm very fortunate. I only teach adults. I don't teach kids that everybody wants to be in the room. And there's a real privilege to that. I don't teach, very, very occasionally I'm persuaded to teach children throwing, but it's teaching adults is amazing. Not to take away from the positive, but some of the (laughs) challenges. You're like, yeah, it's amazing. So you touched on it. You touched on the fact that the challenges were more just actually the financial side of it and getting it all going what kind of challenges switching from when I okay back in 1999 I had my daughter and because of the work I was doing that was an hour and a half commute each way quite a bit of traveling we decided that I would stay at home rather than go back to work and then after about um, three or four years I started doing little bits and bobs admin managerial work locally and at the time I'd been training to do Tai Chi because in my on my maternity leaves get fit sort of thing joined a local gym and they had a Tai Chi class so I was training to do that so I was basically training and teaching Tai Chi which was helping fund my pottery (laughs) why do we have to do it you have to do I do triathlon coaching to help fund my acting and producing (laughs) it's weird isn't it again as as i said i enjoy teaching i certainly enjoy teaching i actually stopped last year when when lockdown came i thought was no it's message from the universe so i've stepped back from that but so yeah i was using the income i was making through teaching tai chi to help fund my pottery pottery is a very well i suppose art can be actually can be very seasonal we're october now running up for the next two and a half months is the big big opportunity to sell work obviously coming up Mm. to Christmas and then nothing January through to April you might get online sales but either things are quite low-key after Christmas for a good couple of months and then there's spring April time you start getting more shows and things happening so it's quite cyclical quite seasonal and it's not a level income when you're starting out you might be selling a pot here one week it might be three weeks before you sell anything else so it's just not a steady income at all and and it's partially that that many people do get into teaching because it's a steady income if you're teaching for 30 weeks a year that's 30 weeks you're getting paid I mean I got into it because I enjoy it it's not a chore for me but it's still the case that the teaching is my baseline income and online selling craft fairs are the peaks 
Right. So it's it's that. And, and obviously, I am, again, very fortunate. My other half has a steady income. He's a great patron of the arts, my other half. He really is. He has to be. He has no choice. <laughs> He's learned about the 700 pounds on a piece yes, of work. Absolutely. Um, so if, if for people to be in the artistic world, uh, I suppose it's the same in theatre, potters, woodturners, sculptors, to, to have a life and raise a family is very difficult, very difficult on what you can earn and the regularity of earning. You may have an amazing month and then nothing for two. If it's January and February, you're not selling anything, but November and December were stratospheric. It's a very difficult sort of lifestyle. And certain personalities can take that and certain personalities can't take that. I'm obviously okay with it because I've stuck at it. You do see other people who don't understand why it's not regular. I think that's the wrong that's the wrong way to look at it. You've got to accept that it, it will be peaks and troughs and just go with that flow. We were talking in class the other day about people, someone was moving and they were moving to to quite a rundown area. And and they're saying, oh first of all the artists move in and They'll get, they'll set up little shows, little exhibitions that get some community workshops going. That pulls in people who've got a little bit more money. The, the area starts to rise. And before you know it, the artists can't afford to live there. Yes. So they move to the next place. <laughs> yes. I lived in Brooklyn for a long time and I can't tell you how many neighborhoods I saw that happening and seeing that change and yeah, what was where all the artists were living when I lived there and where I happened to move. And this was the first stop out of Manhattan. And now it's about 10, 15 stops out that you go and it's, oh, that's the cool neighborhood because the artists live there. The artists would love to live a little bit closer. <laughs> they can't afford the, the rent. They can't afford the mortgage. Yeah, yeah. It's the same. It's the same. I suppose, well, maybe I don't know about the world over, but certainly in the UK, it certainly is the same. And I'm not going to say that's okay, but it's the way it is. And as one person, I can't change that, but I can acknowledge it and go from there. It is what it is. But yeah, it, it, the financial is the big thing. I would love a more, I'd love more income and I'd like it more steady, but that's not going to be, that's not going to be happening anytime soon. Yeah. I do get the impression from the, you that the mental health background and the Tai Chi and everything influences a lot about your life anyway. So yeah. I have a feeling that the going with the flow thing doesn't necessarily come easier, but you have a better way of coping with it than maybe some people. It's choosing your battles. It's choosing your battles. And I can battle with a pot. To, you know, It will do what you want. One of my kilns is decided to play up. I will get it sorted. That I can take on. The financial structure of the UK. Better people than me have tried on that one. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not better, but maybe more suited to that challenge. <laughs> yeah. Equitable for potters. That's what you need. Potter, potter equality. <laughs> So we haven't even touched on what your specialty is with yeah. the moon jars and everything. So yeah. I'd love to talk about moon okay. jars. Right. Well, I have to admit, I had to look up moon jars to really get an impression of exactly what they were. I got a completely different impression about how they were made by looking at them versus reading about them. Mm-hmm. But you're the expert. So tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. Okay. Again, one of those instances where I can remember exactly what was happening when I fell in love with the moon jar. I was doing my diploma in sitting guilds. And one of the things we had to do was research and, and present mood boards, talk about 12 potters. I think technically they were all meant to be living. This lady was dead, but I got away with it. The potter's name is Lucy Ree, very famous potter. 
and her work is just exquisite and if you want to buy me a present if anyone out there wants to buy me a present I would greatly accept anything by Lucy Ray and it was just just as the internet was starting to, to get up so I found a picture of her now she was a tiny little lady and this photograph was taken when she was in her 70s so she's tiny she's got a shock of white hair in some ways this is a bad composition photograph she's got white hair she's wearing a white shirt and trousers against a white background on a white chair next to a white table upon which is this ginormous pot <laughs> ginormous pot and she's tiny and it's so big this pot you think she could climb in that it's that big and um, I said to my my tutor what's that pointing at the pot she went ah moon jar wandered off come back come back what do you mean moon jar (laughs) and she's off you know she's gone I'm a child of the 60s like many kids in July 1969 I was woken up from my bed and plonked in front of the television to watch these shadows of a man two men walking down a ladder onto the moon the space race has always fascinated me always very very interested in the moon so to hear the word moon and jar aka pot in the same (laughs) phrase was like I need to know more I need to know more now Lucy Reed did not make this pot I don't think Lucy Reed ever made a moon jar but she introduced me to them she had been given this pot to look after by Bernard Leach. Why you would give a lady living in central London during the Blitz a pot to look after, I do not know. But somehow or another, this pot survived the Blitz. It now lives in the British Museum. She gave it to the British Museum when she died. And it, you cannot get your arms around it. It is enormous and it's exquisite. They originated in Korea. As I understand Korean history, they were frequently under the control of China and or Japan. And around about the 1650s, they managed to gain independence. And like Europe at the time, there was this great flowering of culture, the Renaissance. And they really carved out a Korean cultural identity. And one of these things were these enormous, big porcelain jars. Throwing porcelain is an incredibly technically difficult feat Um, and to throw something wider than your arms can wrap around is an amazing feat of technical prowess they were always made in two halves and put together and of the ones that were made in the 1650s up to about 1700 we've got about 20 left in the world and they're scattered in the big museums all over the world and i would really suggest you go and have a look at them because they are there is just something about them they're large they're white and they're not perfect They've got lumps, they've got bumps, they've got inclusions in the clay. They're slightly tilting to one side. They are just exquisite and they are handmade in the purest senses of the word. A a potter's hands made them. And initially they were just called big jars and they were for food storage mostly. So they would probably have had a a wooden bung put in them and sealed with wax, that sort Mm. of thing to keep things preserved. And it was only much, much later did they take on the name of moon jar because they're big and white, basically. And when I first found found Lucy Ree and her moon jar... 2001 something like that not many people were making them not many people were making them and I didn't really start making them for for two or three years and then I thought oh I'm gonna gonna make one of these in fact a friend of mine I was heavily into making teapots at the time and she said oh please Debbie stop making teapots make something else I'll make a moon jar um thanks Liz (laughs) and um I thought okay so how am I going to decorate this pot as I'm making it and I hand build I don't throw I hand build so I made it with coils of clay and uh, how am I going to decorate it? 
And at the time, we'd been playing with smoke firing. And I thought, yeah, I want a lunar surface. And you look up at the moon and it's not white. It's not smooth white. There's greys and and all sorts of other colours going on there. We've got phrases like blue moon, blood moon, strawberry moon. We we bring colour into that word, with that word. So I thought, oh, stick it in my smoke bin. So I did. This is fun. Stuck a few more in a smoke bin. This is fun. And then I'd got one that I'd put a white glaze on. What happen if, you know, that wonderful phrase that artists often, scientists as well, have this sort of, what would happen if? So I put the glazed pot in the smoke bin, took it out, and I thought, oh, no. Well, good thing it survived. Didn't crack. Second thing, it was just covered in soot. So I had to take a scrubbing brush to it. And as I scrubbed, it was like, the glaze I put on it wasn't a crackle glaze, but it had crackled because smoke farming is quite abusive to a pot and the glaze had taken exception and the smoke had gone into the cracks. And it was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. So out of a complete, on a whim, oh, what would happen if? I just found a completely new way of decorating my work. So now what I do is I put glaze on but not over the entire pot. I leave deliberately naked areas of clay and I usually apply it with a sponge. So you also get the holes from the natural sponge as well. So that when I smoke fire it, all the smoke goes into the areas where there are no glaze. So you get areas of shiny colour and then you get areas of sort of dull black. And I love that contrast between the shiny colour and the dull matte. And interestingly, when people look at my work, they go, oh, isn't it textured? And you feel it and it's smooth. It does look so textured. They are smooth. I'm, I'm stroking it. I'm stroking a pot. I brought one with me. <laughs> this looks textured, but trust me, it's smooth. There, isn't, there are no lumps and bumps on this. It is interesting, though, because you talked about the Korean moon jars, where, you know, mm-hmm. where this all this inspirations come from. And how they tilt slightly to one side and they're not perfect and how you love the kind of accidents that have happened. And on your website, you talk about wabi-sabi and is it kintsuki? Is that the other? Because, and I think that's interesting that you have this love of imperfection and yet it makes something so beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was very fortunate to a couple of summers ago to go on a throwing course. Having said I hand build, I do actually throw. It's just not my favourite way of making pots, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to go and learn how to throw a moon jar from a Korean gentleman. (laughs) So I, I went on this day and, oh, heavens, this man's skill was just, I, 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 it was just unbelievable. But one of the things he told us was that there are three styles of moon jar spherical egg-shaped and my favorite wobbly <laughs> now it sounded much better in korean very technical <laughs> very technical he said no wobbly well he's good yes wobbly is good wobbly is good if it's an accepted korean form then i'm signing up to that i think it's important we've gone i suppose in the last 30 or so years we've gone into a position in society where everything has to be perfect everything has to be right If you're doing everything right first time, you're not trying hard enough. Sometimes you have to push it till it breaks. And out of that, you get Phoenix from the flame and all that sort of stuff. But if you're always doing it right first time, you are playing safe. Now, there are times to play safe. But every now and again, someone has to say, what happens if I do this? Okay. What happens if? And 
I think it's so important to to accept that not everything's going to be perfect. Some things will break and that's good and that's fine. And I, I, I certainly as a teacher very firmly believe that the best way to learn is to make a mistake and to acknowledge that where I work currently, we've got a very good technician and things break in the kiln. They do. It's just the way it is. And she always leaves them out to show people. Now, some people get upset about that. I think it's wonderful because it means I can take these little pieces of broken parts and say, look, what went wrong? Mm-hmm. Okay, was there an air hole? All sorts of things can go wrong. So you you learn from that. You get better. If everything is safe, who's going to push that barrier? Who's going to try something new? Who's going to show something that's never been seen before? And I think it's really important. I call myself an artist. I feel a bit uncomfortable about that sometimes, but I do call myself an artist. But I also have a science background. And it's interesting. I, I like listening to various sort of programs where they're interviewing scientists and asking where they've come from. And it's, it's the same mindset for a scientist as an artist. It's what happens if? How does this work? How can I understand this better? It's not just the muse flying over and coming in your brain and off you go, you've made this beautiful pot. You've tried something before it's broken you've tried it again it's still not quite what you like but hey I love it it's not what I wanted but I've got something better now and I think that is so important to explore wabi-sabi is linked up with that wabi-sabi is this concept that that there is great beauty in something that has been broken and repaired and the repair line the scar is part of that new thing you've made it's an important aspect of it and I always think of it as imperfection in nature as well so things that would is never going to be perfect and it shouldn't be and it's interesting that Japanese culture one that you would think of people being in a way so obsessed with perfection but it's also the culture that can appreciate beauty in nature beauty and imperfection The yeah. healing with the gold cracks of Kintsuki, where you put something back together and make it more beautiful than maybe it was before it was broken, which I think of us and I think of people as well. We keep putting ourselves back together and there is beauty in that. Absolutely. I was yesterday, this term I'm majoring on sculpture, getting my, my guys in classes to, to do sculpture and brand new students come along and I was showing everyone to how to make a torso and I didn't mean for the new guys to make torsos but anyway they got involved with it as well and she made this female torso and she started saying I'm going to put my cesarean scar on there and I've got an appendix scar who's got a scar and she basically put on her torso lots of scars and I said oh wabi sabi she'd never heard of the concept and yet instinctively there she was on a you know, a very nice little torso that she'd made. She was putting scars to show the path of life. Again, without getting too heavy into it. That's really interesting that somebody without any knowledge of a concept called wabi-sabi or anything like that has thought she's a lady of a certain age. I'm going to put my scars on there. I'm, I'm better than I was. I'm still here. I think it's absolutely fascinating how if you, and this is the Tai Chi, if you give your mind the space, it will come up with an answer. Not necessarily the answer you were looking for, <laughs> True. but it will come up with something. If it, this this stillness of mind, and if you have a still mind, you can listen. 
to what it's saying to you. I only know very little about yoga, but I think it's very similar in yoga as well, that you still the mind and you let something come through. And I think certainly when I'm making, I get into what I call the zone. I get into a rhythm. My hands know what to do because of the rhythm and it lets my mind cogitate on stuff. And I might be wanting to think about, <laughs> I know, <laughs> something, but it'll come up with another answer. So not necessarily the answer I was looking for, but it was a, it's a good thing it comes up with. And I think that's important. And I think that you don't have to be a professional artist. You don't have to try and make a living out of art to get into that zone to let your mind come up with an answer to a question that you weren't necessarily asking yourself. And that's definitely where it touches on mental health. You don't have to produce the perfect pot to get better self-esteem for having produced that better pot. I think the fact that you've allowed yourself that little bit of quiet time, that little bit of, ooh, yeah, I've got a bit of a a settling of of the shoulders and a relaxing of the back. And, And I think that's important in creativity as a whole, pottery, art musical theatre, everything. I think it's important. So it's segues, not quite, but I'm going to do it anyway, to the quotes that I ask you to bring. Sarah Millican. Sarah Millican. I adore Sarah Millican. I think she's brilliant. Yeah, it's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It might not be on. So stomp down there and turn the fucker on yourself or something like that. It's really good. Depending on her audience, she changes the words. Um, But it's really, you know, sometimes you have to go and find your own light. And that's okay. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. You just have to go and find it sometimes. It doesn't always shine. And that's okay. That's fine. I think it's acknowledging the fact that life can be tough and you have to find your own answer. You have to find your own answer. I knew it segued. I was like, <laughs> yes, there's this stilling your mind to find the answer. And yeah. sometimes you just have to stop down the fucking tunnel. Yeah, it's again, it's not playing it safe. If, if you're stomping down a pitch black tunnel... You are definitely out of comfort zone, number one there, aren't you? You know, and it's having that courage. That's that's a loaded word, isn't it? It's having the, okay, I'll do it sometimes. And it's not always, it's not always easy, but it's sometimes you have to do it. And to expect a life where that doesn't have to happen. I think you're setting yourself up for fail. One of my little sayings <laughs> that I say to my, my um, I've got lots of little sayings. And I drive my students up the wall. But one of my little sayings is you cannot be a, f- a perfectionist and a happy potter. It's just they cannot live happily alongside each other. And if that's counter to how you feel and it gives you so much discomfort, pottery is not for you. I'm a firm believer that everyone has an everyone has a thing. Some people just haven't found it yet. Mine is pottery. Someone else's might be singing. Someone else's might be playing. My other half plays the ukulele. Drives me potty. He adores it. Potty again. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Other people, my my sister's just run the marathon. She's found her thing. She really has seriously found her thing in running. And people need to find that. And and sometimes it just takes people time to find their thing. But the self-worth you feel when you find it is, is just... I think it can really lift the spirit. Uh, I think that's it's important that people have that space in their lives. And again, I totally acknowledge I've been lucky. I've been able to find that and be able to really explore my, my, my material. I gave you two phrases, didn't I? What was the other one? I love what you just said, though. I feel like that's such a beautiful... It was something about champagne, which is also really good. Yes. (laughs) People say it was Winston Churchill and other people say it was someone else. Always have a bottle of champagne in the fridge. There are times when you want to celebrate. And sometimes it'll just be because there is a bottle of champagne in the fridge. And that's about my, my... 
one of my grands was a very stoic lady. She lived in Folkestone all her life. She was bombed out in the war of her house three times. She lost brothers, cousins in wars. And she gave me an autograph book. I don't think people have them anymore, autograph books. She gave me an autograph book for my birthday once. And she wrote in it, and it really annoyed me at the time, if you cannot have the best, make the best of what you have. I was probably about 10. What? It stuck with me. I haven't got the autograph book, but I've still got the phrase in my mind and the fact that she wrote it in there. And that was her sort of approach to life. And it did her no harm. It put her in good stead. It's wisdom. It's wisdom wrapped up in there. Um, I do think, too, it does go back to the depending on what you think is best. Sometimes your mind shifts. Sometimes your mindset shifts. So make the best of what you have. You pull something out of your smoking kiln and it doesn't look like what you expected. You could say, this isn't the best, or you could start wiping off soot and find a whole new way to make pottery. Exactly. It's being open. It's having that open sort of mind. I'd like to think I have an open mind. There are certain things I will never do. I will never bungee jump. (laughs) Fair. Never going to get me fired doing that (laughs) whatsoever. It's not my thing. I don't think you need to do that to have a fulfilling no, life. No, I, I totally agree. Um, there are members of my family who would disagree, but <laughs> and although I'm incredibly proud of my sister having run a marathon, I am never going to run a marathon. You don't have to do that either. No, but they found their thing. I've got mine. We're all happy. So, yeah. And I think that approach as well keeps you interested, keeps you open to new ideas and it's the curiosity, isn't it? The human curiosity, I think, is really important to hang on to. Otherwise, um, it just becomes the same old. Well, Debbie, it's been so fun chatting with oh, you. It's been and I, I, I'm so happy that, that we connected because I'm so glad that I got to learn more about moon jars. And we did have such a hard time between. <laughs> it was worth the hassle, wasn't it? How many times is it? Three different times? Yes, we've had such a hard time scheduling this in, but it's definitely been worth it. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Good luck with everything. Finding new things, keeping the curiosity alive. Got to do it. Got to do it. A cold glass of champagne. Cheers to that. My desert island disc drink. (laughs) Every sunset, a glass of cold champagne. That's a good way to live life. (laughs) It is. It is. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.